Hello, everybody. We will be speaking about how to recover from heartbreak. Uh, yes, we got a few comments already on that, not just now, but earlier. Why do you have to speak about such a sad topic? I always like to, hear, to get an upbeat message and not something that's going to break my heart. I remember one speaking about a topic, and I mentioned the idea of existential loneliness, where you just feel lonely sometimes in this world, not for any particular reason. You can even come to tears. I remember someone in the audience came over and said, please don't speak about existential loneliness again. But being a little troublemaker as I am, I don't always take orders well. So I am going to speak about heartbreak. And I think, I hope, you'll be pleasantly surprised that it may bring some tears, but it also may bring, bring some smiles. How's that? Okay. The very word heartbreak, broken heart, itself brings shudders to us. because It's one of the most debilitating experiences, let's be honest. When someone's heart is broken, whether it's uh, in love, you really were in love with somebody, and then they break your heart either by rejecting you or betraying you or anything of that nature, very tough, very difficult, because it's the whole your whole emotions take over and consume you with the with the agony and the anguish and the the grief over the loss. Heartbreak can also come, God forbid, sometimes in the form of death or a loss again someone that you were very close to, suddenly ripped away from you. It takes on many different forms and. Uh, I'm not going to wish on anyone that they should not have heartbreak, as you're going to see soon, because life, if your heart is working, your heart can break and your heart can be complete. And we're going to talk about that a lot. Uh, I'll focus on that elaborately. The point that I'm making right now is that anyone who's gone through this experience knows that it is quite devastating and quite overwhelming and powerful, but as uh, you must, if you're familiar with some of the teachings I've always taught here, every energy, every emotion that's powerful, every experience that's powerful can go two directions. Powerful things can be powerfully devastating, and they can be powerfully, what would be the antonym, the antonym of devastating, powerfully uh, transformative. Because that's what power is about. Mediocre things only affect you in a mediocre fashion. Very powerful things affect you in a powerful way. See, even when we're dealing with topics like, and I remember addressing this several months ago, a topic like um, grief, pain, suffering. These are extremely powerful feelings because they, we see how they affect and impact us. The ch- challenge there is not to eliminate them, but to harness them. Because if there's a lot of energy in something, the energy can be used in a way that destroys or it can be used in a way that, that builds. So take, for example, fire. Fire, simple physical fire, one of the most uh, powerful forces in our lives. We know fire is terrifying, frightening. You know, fire breaks out. It's uncontrollable. It can take life, God forbid. It can cause unbelievable, uh, unfathomable damage. And yet fire is necessary for life. If we did not have warmth, uh, first of all, physical warmth, the warmth of the sun, the warmth of our own bodies, we would not be able to survive. So what? So how do you explain that? That fire is so devastating at the same time so critical to life? Because it's about harnessing it. If it's, over, if it's overabundant, too close to the fire, you get burned. 
If you're too far from the fire, you freeze. So you need to find the perfect balance. And the same thing is with any powerful force. Sexuality is another excellent example. Sexuality is so much part of the human being, our sexual persona, our sexual energy, however you want to define it. It's mysterious. No one really understands it, but we know it's powerful. And it's powerful in both ways. It can bring the greatest amount of grief, and not only grief, jealousies and devastation. Wars have been fought over love and sexuality and all that comes with that. And it can also bring the greatest amount of comfort and pleasure and companionship and unity and bring life into this world. So there you have it. Every time something is very powerful, it always can go in both directions. To use it even maybe a, even a more simpler, like almost a uh, type of childish example, is you know, the Jewish theory of relativity. Even though Einstein was Jewish, but there's another Jewish theory of relativity pre- preceding Einstein. That is the three hairs on, uh, on your head are not much, but three hairs in the soup is very much. Same three hairs. So when you have a piece of dust that's on your finger, that's insignificant. That same piece of dust on your eyeball is, is terribly irritating. Why? Because it all depends on the, on the context. In a very sensitive place, every little thing matters. So for instance, in the Holy of Holies, which was the holiest place on earth in the temple, every blemish mattered. If the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he was not pure, he could die right there. Because it was so pure that it would not tolerate even one indiscretion. In a more callous environment, in a more callous universe, you know, a lot of things go because it's a callous environment and, and it, doesn't, it can't, doesn't recognize, it's not that sensitive to every small detail. So wherever something is very powerful, it always can go in two directions. It can be extremely powerful in the positive. Even though it's true when someone's in the throes of any form of emotional expression, whether it's passion or pain or grief, it's very hard to talk to that person and say, you know what? channel or harness these feelings, because once feelings take over, the ships that survive uh, uh, storms at, the sea, at sea are the ones that are built stronger. So in anticipation of all the challenges life presents, the more you build your strong foundations, the more you prepare yourself for emotional strong moments, for good or for bad, the more you can endure and ride through any storm. So the challenge really then is, when you're dealing with emotions, or all emotions, and I'm going to get back to our topic here, heartbreak, is understanding the nature of an emotion, a feeling. So I'm going to speak about it in an analytic way, even though it sounds a little uh, somewhat uh, um, strange. How can you speak, how can you be analytical about an emotion when analytic and emotions are two different worlds? But we can be. That's what the mind is so good at. The mind can analyze something that it itself doesn't even experience, because it's like a machine. So let's talk about the difference between those two faculties, those two major faculties within us, the mind, our intellect, our cognitive skills, basically, and our emotional behavior. So in Kabbalistic and Hasidic thought, as you may be familiar, these are the two key elements of conscious experience, conscious. We're not talking about superconscious. What's conscious? So you have your mind. Your mind processes information, takes in data, absorbs knowledge, and your emotions experience, feel things. The mind does not experience. The mind, at its best, is an excellent processor. It's an excellent computer. Now, obviously, when you're a human being, the mind and the heart work hand in hand. So, in a sense, you could say the central nervous system and the sensations, even of the heart, even of our emotions, go through the mind. But if you talk about the mind purely as an intellectual processor, 
Um, what, what, what is the key distinction between that and emotions? So one example, a good example can be, think of the captain of the ship and the ship. The captain of the ship is, is the one that's meant to intelligently navigate the ship, set out a course, and then direct his subordinates to make sure that the ship goes on course. But you can have a, you can have a, you can have a captain, and you can have an entire crew sitting in a laboratory or sitting in a university and talking about all kinds of maneuvers and strategies of traveling, and it's all in their heads. It's all theory. When is the ship really moving is when you have an actual ship at sea with a captain directing it. So if you think of it this way, if you only have the captain and the crew, you don't have an experience. If you only have the, the ship and the sea, you only have the experience and you have no direction. So with that analogy, you can really apply that to our lives. That an intelligent, mature person, the intelligence of that person is, should be the captain, should be the one that processes information, um, sifts through it, determines to the best of its ability what's right, what is wrong, what's healthy, what's not healthy. In a sense, like almost protecting the emotions before the emotions come into full-blown action so the emotions don't just go off in the wrong course like a ship that uh, doesn't have a uh, rudder or doesn't have a captain. To just use an example, you get a phone call from a telemarketer. I'm sure everybody's gotten this. You know, today we have caller ID, so you more or less filter that out often, right? You get a call to a telemarketer, telemarketer, or you meet someone who's, who's great, uh, has the gift of gab, and is great at selling anything. And they try to sell you something, and they really know how to manipulate your emotions and make you feel, oh, wow, this is something, an opportunity, a once-in-my-lifetime opportunity. And they may be selling you complete garbage, you know, complete nonsense. But they know how to do it. And then you say to them, oh, you know what? Very interesting. It's very appealing. Give me a day to think about it. No one that's selling you something is going to let you think about it. So they'll say, well, this deal is over in, in 20 minutes. You ever see these ads, these, these tele-ads at night? They say, if you don't call within like, in like 25 seconds, you don't get the deal. That's basically meant to bypass your cognitive uh, reflection, whether this is right or wrong. They want to get your emotions, and they want you to act on your emotions. Because emotions, by definition, are impulsive. By children who their minds are not working, I'm talking about full-blown minds, intellect, you see how impulsive they are. Adults, officially we have minds that are supposed to check our emotions, but we also can be manipulated, and we also can suddenly be impulse, impulsive, as we see all the time. And it's like, you know, crimes of passion, as they call it. So it's the impulses of the emotion that are so intense, and you don't even give it second thought, and what happens, you end up buying the product, then you find out the whole thing is worthless. You say, had I given it a little more thought, I would never have bought this. Just a small example. This happens all the time, every day in our lives, every moment. You're walking down the street, and, you're, and you know, your eyes are wandering. You suddenly see something in a window. I got to have that. It's a completely what they call emotional binge, you know, binge eating or binge shopping or binge whatever you're binging on. What's happening? Your emotions are getting the better of you. You may need to soothe yourself. You may try to reward. You may be rewarding yourself. You may be punishing yourself. You may be relieving anxiety. We all have our little addictions. When they're full-blown addictions, then, of course, it's out of control. What are those addictions? It's that basically impulsive behavior that you think you'll do this, it will relieve your whatever it is meant to relieve or reward. This is, talking about binge eating, this is a big thing. People eat, not because they're hungry. They become something, some trigger, triggers that you put your hand in the cookie box or whatever that food is, and it goes to your mouth and just becomes some type of automatic reflex. That's an emotional 
impulsive behavior. The mind, on the other hand, when it's at its best, when it's at its best, is a reflector. It reflects on everything. It doesn't jump to conclusions. It studies something. Yes, this may be very appealing, but let's look at all the consequences, long-term consequences. So if your mind was really working full, full force all the time, you probably make 90% of the mistakes you make wouldn't happen. Someone yells at you, or someone says something that's insulting. And, you know, if your mind is not in control, you usually tit for tat, you react, and then later you say, why did I react? You know, all that. If the mind reflects, the mind says, you know what, you can always react tomorrow. Why don't you think about it before you react? How many mistakes we make because of impulsive reactions? Had we reflected a little more, we may not have done it. So the mind at its best is very much exact opposite of the emotions. It's a, an observer. It evaluates. It examines. It processes. It researches. It looks at things from all different angles. And then it tells the person, you know what? I did my research, so to speak. It's, this is a good thing to pursue. And then, if you're, then your heart opens up. And you know what? Your heart says, I like it. But your heart is now being informed by your mind telling you that this is worthwhile. Just like someone suggests a date. And you know, you see the person, they're very handsome or very beautiful, male or woman, female, whatever it is, and you say, I'm in. But then you say, you know what, I never even found out who this person is. And you do a little research, you find that they're a criminal. I'm just giving you an example. Or you find that they're abusive. So, you know, the package looks good. But your mind is going to tell you, you can't just go by emotional feelings, you've got to check a person out. And even in the dating process, you just let your emotions open up. You can be very, you're very vulnerable. You can be very deeply hurt. So an intelligent, healthy, balanced person is not going to go to extremes. They'll say, okay, I like what I see, but they still, still have some doubts. I still have questions. You let your mind basically regulate as a, like breaks. Don't let the, just the emotions just open up. This doesn't mean because you don't want to be emotional. It means that you need to make sure that you are, can let that person into your heart. And you can let your heart into them. That's the process. I know it's easier said than done. It doesn't always work perfectly. But I'm just talking a moment. I'm talking from an analytical point of view, obviously. Because when the emotions start speaking, they can override what the mind says. And not only that, they can even influence what the mind says. Because we have to remember there's another scenario that's called prejudice and biases and preconceived notions. Where the emotions of the heart actually convince the mind to say something which has not, this is what we call, when you, in, in legal terms, where you have to recuse yourself if you have a bias. Because what happens is your emotional connection, your, your, your vested interest, which is basically your emotional connection, whether it's a family member or it's a business partner, or you have some other benefit coming out of the results of this, let's say, case, essentially does not allow you to be, allow to you to be objective. It means your mind cannot truly think objectively. The mind will find ways to justify the, uh, the situation because that's what the emotions are saying. This is the classic example where we say where we become bribery or bias can bias our minds and prejudice us. And any good, any good, any health, any honest judge or any honest arbiter or any honest uh, purveyor or well, what will they do? They will essentially recuse themselves if they feel is a situation that um, they, have a, they have a preconceived bias. If they're not honest, or sometimes don't even know themselves, they may, um, make believe, they may convince themselves they're objective. 
But any healthy, intelligent person is always going to question, am I truly objective? If you're truly, truly an honest person. That's why you find the, in the Bible, the Torah says, hasheichid, which is bribery, or bias of any form, ya'aver enechacham. It makes the, uh, it blinds the eyes of the wise. And salaf, and it distorts the tongue, the words of the righteous. So the obvious question is this, why do you call, the, why does the Torah call that person wise or righteous if they can be biased and distorted? Because that's the power of bias. Bias affects anybody. Even the great Moses recused himself when he felt that there may be some tinge of interest in a particular, vested interest in a particular situation. So this doesn't mean we suddenly, we are trapped in our subjectivity. It means that a subjective person who's, who's honest knows that you can have a blind spot and you'll acknowledge it. Like I always repeat the line that I always, it always brings a smile to my face that the guy that came to me and was looking you know, for years, he was trying to get married, couldn't find the right person and he was convinced he had a curse upon him. So I said to him, you sure you tried everything? Yeah, I tried everything. So I said, do you have any blind spots? He was a smart guy and he said to me, yes, but I know what they are. And I said to him, really? That blind spot means you don't know what it is. That's what makes it a blind spot. If you know what it is, it's not a blind spot then it's just a matter of recognizing where it is. We all have blind spots, and we have, like they say, there are things we know we don't know, and there are things we don't know we don't know. The things we know we don't know, that's safer. At least you know you don't know, so you're going to ask. But if you're convinced that you know something, and you don't even know that you don't know, meaning you don't know that you don't know, then that's where real biases come into play, and you can really end up being your own worst enemy. And we're all capable of that, everybody. And it's the honest person that will admit that, and it's not even easy because then you have to go and consult with someone that you trust that's not going to just be there to criticize you, someone that you can trust and say, you know what, I'm not sure. Am I biased or not biased in this case? It's not an easy thing because you can live your whole life convinced of something and then later find out, you know what, I mean, I felt good being convinced of myself, but I wasn't necessarily right. So this is part of the process. The reason I'm elaborating on this is because we, before we speak about heartbreak, and what happens when the heart is hurt or shattered and we're disappointed on an emotional level, you have to first identify how the heart works and how the mind works. So to sum up, a healthy mind is essentially an objective captain of a ship that cannot be biased or prejudiced or should not be biased or prejudiced because its role is to direct and guide without any biases and without any prejudices and without any judgment, without any of any of the emotional factors. And then you know you can trust, just like you can trust a calculator. You punch in the numbers, it crunches the numbers and gives you a result. You're not going to question, did this calculator have any personal bias and maybe gave me the wrong result? You know, like what do they say? They say that, uh, um, I'm trying to remember how it works. A guy comes and is looking to analyze an investment he's making. So he asks his... uh, his accountant, you know, if I do this and this, this type of investment, what will be the result? So the accountant gives him back, gives him back a result. When he goes to speak to his, uh, his, uh, his, um, uh, his uh, mathematician, I'm sorry, the mathematician comes back and gives him a result. When he goes to his accountant and says to him, well, it depends if you do this, you know, it makes it very relative. And if he goes to an economist, the economist says, what result do you want to have? And based on that, gives him advice. In other words, there's a thing called objective advice and there's a thing called subjective advice. 
So when you're dealing with the, the, in a healthy mind, is able to just do that with, and you can trust its results because it's just detached from the, in, the in self-interest that is coming as a result of its conclusions. Now, let's talk about the emotions on the, by contrast, the exact opposite. Emotions are not meant to be objective. Emotions are created and we have emotions in us to experience things. They're not, it's not meant to process. That's why we're blessed with both, as I said, a mind and emotions. I mentioned before in the Kabbalistic and Hasidic so-called building blocks or map of our DNA of our faculties. It said three intellectual faculties and seven emotional ones. Here's not the place to go into the details, but if you're familiar with my book on the Omer, talk about the seven emotions, the seven weeks between Passover and Shavuos, the seven days of the week. But the bottom line is we are blessed with both. We are not like animals in the field that are primarily driven by their impulses. So they can be brilliant. They're brilliant hunters and they're brilliant protectors of their young. But it's all about survival. It is the human being that has the capacity to truly be objective. Because we have a mind that can be detached of our emotions. An animal is never meant to be objective. When a lion or any predator is hungry, the clockwork of nature demands that it will go hunting. And you can't reason with it and say, no, don't go hunting because you're gonna, you, we can't, you can't shed blood. That's not the way it's meant to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, the world, it's, the, it's nature. A human being can be reasoned with and said, this may be an impulse you have, but it may not be a healthy impulse. And you need to think about it because you can also do something destructive. In the, in the animal kingdom, unless humans corrupt nature, the animal kingdom, there's no such thing as right. Everything is right. They were created a certain way. They keep a balance. There's a certain natural balance. Even in the world of predator and prey, where things may not be a little bloody and not, pe- not pleasant to the eye, but it's part of a balance. And if that balance is not maintained, the whole world suffers. If predators do not kill their prey, the prey can start multiplying in larger numbers and destroy entire uh, fields and so on, as is known to have happened just a few years ago in Yellowstone, where the, where they, where the wolves were almost driven to extinction. So what happened? There was a, a, an overpopulation of elk, and other prey that the wolves, and the elk almost destroyed the whole Yellowstone Park because they were eating so much shrubbery that there was no vegetation left, so other animals were dying out. And you could see right there the balance. And this is a complex ecosystem. You see it in the, at sea, that if one part of the world, thousands of miles away, can be affected if the balance is, is destroyed, and sometimes destroyed by humans due to our own polluting the waters or polluting the environment. The point is, is a balance. When it comes to human beings, because we have free will and we can do things that are completely selfish, we can end up hurting others for our own self-interest and, and, and destroy the balance. And humans have done that through war, through injustice, through all the other pains that we, uh, and abuse that we can heap upon one another. You're not going to have the concept of abuse in the animal kingdom. And if you do, it's probably because humans some way, some way abuse the animals to cause them to have that. It doesn't mean animals are not cunning and they don't have their own tricks and so on, but more or less it's a balance. It's not only more or less, all the way a balance. So when it comes to the human being, here we have the clash between what the mind says and what your heart says. So in a healthy balance, like I mentioned the analogy with the captain of the ship, the captain, imagine the ship, imagine imagine the, the kitchen of the ship or the other crew members decide to tell the captain what to do. Or the ship has a mind of its own and decides, you know what, I'm not going this way, I'm going this way. 
It's not the way it's supposed to work. In a healthy human being, an adult, an adult, the mind should be the captain, should process, should look ahead, should give us, should lay out a course of the coordinates where you go. The emotions, however, experience. Because as I said, a captain without a ship is meaningless. It's just a theory. We experience. So who experiences life is the emotions. Who likes things? Who's attracted to something? Who's, who's, who is repelled by something? That's the emotions. The emotions feel and they experience. The mind experiences through the emotions, but the mind is primarily, therefore, a, more of an analyst and a processor, and the emotions are experiencer. Now, of course, you want the best of both. You want the mind to inform the heart so the heart doesn't go off and do self-destructive things. On the other hand, you want the mind, not just to, you see people who play great mind games and they live in their heads and they're very cerebral, but they never experience, they don't allow their hearts to open up to another person. So that's the other extreme, where you're living in the head and there's no real life experiences. So that being said then, so then if you think of it that way, then if you analyze the heart, and I'm doing especially, I'm again emphasizing, I'm using the mind to understand the heart now. Because the heart cannot understand itself, because by definition, it's an experiencer. An emotion cannot relate to an emotion because it's experiencing. The mind can observe and tell us the following. That when you understand and analyze the heart and you dissect the heart, the heart is a very vulnerable entity, precisely because it experiences things. The mind is much less is, is invulnerable in a certain way. Can't say completely invulnerable, but much less vulnerable because the mind can protect itself with its own intelligence. It could say, you know what, I'm not going to be manipulated, or I'm not going to be emotionally overwhelmed or emotionally um, uh, seduced by something. The heart is not that way at all. If we're left only with hearts and no minds, we can be manipulated and hurt and uh, violated and abused in every possible way, because the heart is essentially a vulnerable emotion. That's why we need to protect our children. Why? Because children don't yet have minds to, 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 to make judgment calls. You know, they can be manipulated, they can be used, they can be abused. They don't have developed minds yet that say, you know, someone's nice to them, they don't know how to distinguish, is this person really nice, or, is this, or do they have an agenda? An adult, mind, adult person can, has that discretion. As I said, with balance, because we're not looking to just completely hide behind the mind as well. So if you look at a heart, by definition, a heart is a vulnerable entity. But here's the beautiful concept. Vulnerability is not a, is not a flaw. Since when is vulnerability a problem? Most people, if you hear the word vulnerability, I'm vulnerable, they feel right away threatened. Why? Because vulnerability means I don't have my, my defenses up. It means someone else can take advantage of me. Now, that is true when there are people who are predators or hostile forces or in some way, um, uh, some way parasites or whatever you call them. But vulnerability, by definition, is not necessarily a bad thing because when you are with someone you trust and love and they love you and that trust has been established and it's a healthy trust. So actually, I would say that love is the celebration of vulnerability because it means your heart that vulnerable heart has found a comfortable place to be. The mind does not know, understand these type of things. The mind understands it. I should correct myself. It understands it cerebrally. But the mind doesn't experience things that way. Just like a computer can give you all the correct information. You know, what do they say about uh, whether a computer is male or female? You know that one? 
So they have this argument, the male and female. So some say it's a male. The women say it's a male. Why? Because it has a lot of data, but it's clueless. You know? So you can have a lot of information and be clueless in far, as far as human experience goes. Like, you know, you can have a lot of... You can have intelligence intelligence, but not have emotional intelligence. You know, there are a lot of people like that. They're very smart, book smart, theoretical. They're very good at anything that is um, abstract thinking. But when it comes to street smart or emotional intelligence, they can be complete imbeciles. You know, human intelligence, how to interact with others. As a matter of fact, some people who are really cerebral are terrible in social settings. We're not going to analyze now why. And everybody, of course, is case by case. Not everything is always... It's not, that's not a rule. You can have people that have both strengths. But it's different types of intelligence because the heart is a vulnerable entity and healthy love is celebrating vulnerability. But because the word vulnerability has, has so many, is so reloaded with um, negative con- in, in connotations, we, we, what we do is we create all kinds of defenses, which is what you'll hear in any relationship, like whether it's a man or a woman, they'll say he or she is putting up a wall, defenses. And when you really break it down, after people get through their denial and they'll acknowledge it, they'll say yes, because I've been hurt, I don't want to be hurt again. It's a common expression. I've been hurt either in my childhood, or I've seen my parents hurt each other, or I've, seen, or I've been hurt as an adult. This happens all the time. So what happens when a person is emotionally hurt? Like anything you do is you right away you're going to have much more uh, fear of engaging. And you'll put up a wall. A defense mechanism, what we call defense mechanisms. And sometimes they become very elaborate defense mechanisms. And sometimes it's even like a sheet of armor. That someone gets too close, you will not let them in. I'm not saying with you, I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. This is just common expressions. It's just like if a person has been wounded, let's say, physical wound, once and twice and three times, what do you think you're going to do? You're usually going to avoid using that part of your body or you're, going to, or you're going to deflect it through because you don't want to be hurt again. You know, you see this all the time. Let's say someone has a leg injury, so they start relying on the other leg. Okay, part of therapy and, and rehabilitation is being able to use the leg again and not be afraid. There's also the fear involved. People have injury in sports. They're sometimes afraid to use that arm or to use that part of the body. So psychologically, it's the same thing. When you've been hurt, it's a natural thing that you're going to try to protect yourself not to be hurt again. And especially if it's been multiple times, then you're definitely going to have very strong defense mechanisms. So the nature of an emotion, therefore, is vulnerable, vulnerability because it's experiencing. The mind is very safe. You know why? With a mind, what some call the cognitive uh, life raft, with a mind you can imagine things without experiencing it. It's very safe. You can read about it and you don't have to experience it. And you can be very safe because you read about it and then you say, you know what? I feel safer now, I'm going to try it. But a mind allows you to, experience, to, um, to find out about something without experiencing it. On the other hand, if you stay in the mind, you'll never experience anything. But that's why a healthy mind can help acclimate and, and prepare, prime the heart to experience something because the mind can say, you know, I checked it out and it's safe. It's just like you find stories, or, in the, or generally when you send scouts during a time of war. Before the battle, you send scouts into enemy territory. What's the purpose of the scouts? To check it out and come back and say, you know what? Here's where they're vulnerable. Here's where they are strong. Here are their positions. 
So this is essentially what the mind is very good at doing. In the emotions, the heart can send the mind, you know what, go check it out intellectually and give me a report. That report says it's not biased, as I mentioned before. It's like anything. It's like someone thinking about investing in a business or buying a business. What are you going to do? You're not going to just emotionally make a decision. You're going to do research some due diligence. You'll send experts to check it out. And then you say, you know what, on paper it looks fine. Or you find out, no, this is terrible. And you just leave. On paper it looks fine. But then you say, okay, now I'm ready to really see if this is something I'm going to do. And then you'll find anyone, any investor, any buyer will always say, I need my emotions to make sure I'm right because you want to know intuitively. It may all be right on paper, but you may not feel comfortable. But at least you went through the first stage of research, which really allows you to then enter and say, you know what, on paper everything's been covered. Now let's figure out if this is really going to work. Which is example what I said earlier about dating or any example. But let's go back to the heart. So the heart, by definition, is a vulnerable entity because it experiences things. And therefore, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. The strength of experience is obvious. Life, you don't live life to the fullest if you don't experience it. If a person's going to be afraid to go swimming or to try any new thing in life because they're afraid they're going to fail or they're afraid they're going to be hurt, they'll never experience life. So experience is really where life plays itself out. That's the world of emotions. On the other hand, the downside, downside, I don't say downside, but the other side of the coin is that by experiencing things, you could be hurt, yes. So here is the reality that nobody likes to hear. That love, by definition, is always potential for being hurt. There's no such thing as being guaranteed. If one guarantees, then you're going to have to live in your head, and you'll never have a real experience. Because by definition, an emotion has to experience things. So by definition, a heart that loves can be a heart that will be broken. Now, we live in a world where we try to convince ourselves that we have control, especially in relationships. So it's just like you can press Amazon Prime and within an hour get whatever you want on Earth or, to, or, or the other technologies we have today. Everything is immediate. You can get any fruit out of season in any one of these 24-7 stores or 24-6 stores, whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's an illusion that we're in control of everything. But the fact of the matter is relationships have not become more advanced just because we have technology. I mean, I wish it was the case to say because we have the internet, and because we have iPhones, and because we have social media, people's intimacy is healthier. People's uh, emotional intelligence is healthier. No, it doesn't work that way. In the early days of the computer age, they used to call it junk in, junk out. Garbage in, garbage out. Computers don't, cannot make you a better person. If you're a good person, it can make you a better person. But if you're a bad person, it can also make you a worse person. So it has nothing to do. These are machines that just accelerate the process. They don't change. So you can use these machines and these gadgets to destroy the world in a faster way, or you can use it to build a better world in a faster way. No question. Like I said before, power goes in two directions, but it's, an, but it's, but it's neutral. It's morally neutral. So, when you go, so in, with that illusion of control, think about it in the context of relationships. I can tell you from the thousands of people I've counseled and met and talk about relationships, uh, in, whether it's in marital sense or it's between parents and children or other types of relationships, you always come somewhere, you're going to always find one 
element. I mean, there's no one size fits all, obviously, but there's always one factor that always comes into play. And that is that people want to control the relationship. They want to control the other person. And very often you have situations where, because they don't want to be hurt. So they'll give only as much that they are willing to give, but they're not going to give unconditionally. Just like people have told me, I've heard this more than once, saying, I, I, I love her unconditionally, unconditioned that she loves me. Understand, the unconditional is based on a condition. You know, that type of approach. Or there's a guy that I know for many years, he's a very interesting guy, smart guy, and he's a wealthy guy, and you know, he's his way, he can do whatever he wants with his life, financially at least. And he tells me, a while back he says to me, you know, I finally mastered the art of being in a relationship with a beautiful woman with no commitment. And he was like proud of it. I said, does she know about that too? He says, not yet. You know, he figured out how to be in a relationship with no commitments. I said, so tell me, what does a relationship with no commitment mean exactly? Isn't that like a contradiction of terms? Then there's no relationship. Then it's like going to a grocery store, you buy what you want, you're not committed to the grocery store, and you move on. What's, where's, you know, so, and I said, does, would, you, would you tolerate if she also says a relationship with no commitment? Of course he wouldn't. In other words, he's trying to manipulate the situation that he gives what he wants to give, and, doesn't, and, and takes what he wants to take, but it's uh, based on his terms. This is the classic unhealthy approach to relationships, where instead of uh, being vulnerable, he doesn't want to be vulnerable. Who wants to be vulnerable? doesn't sound very pleasant, but the real experience of life is meant exactly that, that you are vulnerable, but you're with someone you trust, and therefore vulnerability is something to celebrate, not to be afraid of. That's not a statement that's easy to swallow. And why? Because we do live in a hostile world, and we have been hurt. Sad as, uh, the fact, as sad as it is to state, most families in this world are dysfunctional. They're not functional. There are functional, but many are not. And I would say more, more, more not than yes. I don't know the numbers. I don't know if we'll ever know the numbers, because how do you even measure that? And who will admit it? So when you're growing up in a home where the parents were either too busy for their children... Or they were just together too busy for each other even, and they just split up, whether through divorce or separation, just even being together but emotionally never really being there. You grow up in such an environment. And I'm not even mentioning now overt abuse, whether physical, emotional, psychological, sexual, and all that rest that comes with it. I'm not going to go through every nightmare scenario. You do. So what do, you th- what do you think, which child growing up in an environment like that is ready to be vulnerable? They were vulnerable, and they were deeply hurt by their vulnerability. So they grow into adults, they're suddenly, yeah, I'm going to be vulnerable, come, do anything you want. Who will ever do that? And those that do, that's also damaging, because as you'll see, many people who are victims or survivors of abuse, sometimes it goes in both directions. It either goes that they become so, such a, 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 a uh, what's the word? A uh, armor, a something of armor. What do I want to say? Some a so many layers of armor that nobody can get in, or they become completely promiscuous, where everybody can take advantage of them. No balance at all. So these are the classical textbook reactions to a vulnerable child who had a healthy vulnerability and it was taken advantage of, and it was abused, and in some way it was violated. So the innocence of a young child is stolen from them, grown, him or her, grown to an adult. So what do you think? How is that going to play itself out in relationships? How could that even be? Well, I mean, obviously, with work and therapy, it could be corrected. I'm not saying not. 
But without any work, vulnerability is a dirty word. It's a very dangerous word. I've, I've tried it. People, I tell them, vulnerability in a, in a relationship. People, I've seen people cringe when they hear that word. Vulnerability? I've had enough vulnerability in my life. I need now security. So they, so they don't re-identify with the idea of celebrating your vulnerability. And that's why the word heartbreak can break your heart. No pun intended. Why? Because it's, it's so devastating. And I'm not taking away from the devastation. But the fact of the matter is, if a heart's going to be a heart, an emotion's going to be an emotion, it comes hand in hand with its ability to be broken. Now, broken doesn't always, always mean a bad thing. There's an expression, a Hasidic expression, that says the following. There's nothing as straight, there's nothing as crooked as a straight lie. There's nothing, it's a Yiddish, I'm translating from the Yiddish, I'll try to do justice to it. There's nothing as crooked as a straight lie. There's nothing as straight as a crooked ladder, right? Because if a ladder is straight, you can't do anything with it. It has to be crooked. And there's nothing as complete as a broken heart. You ever heard this expression? So why am I talking about that? Because suddenly, if you think of it that way, what does that mean exactly? Most of us think heartbreak in a very negative way. I was in love with someone, and they betrayed me, or they left me, or they hurt me. My heart is broken. Or they died. God forbid. So my heart is broken, and I'm overwhelmed by it, and I can't eat, and I can't sleep, and I'm just devastated. Very common expression when someone is in a state of heartbreak. Now, when you hear it in that context, it sounds completely negative. Why? Because who's, who deserves that? Why should a person be betrayed or hurt or, uh, or, or be abandoned or like that? And what we think in those terms, we say, okay, how could I avoid that? What will we usually do, as I mentioned before, when it happens enough times, you start, you don't let your heart open so fast because it's been hurt. It's been, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been wounded. But that is a very negative impression of heartbreak. There's another side to look at it. That when you're with someone you really love, it's not just that you love them and they love you. Your heart breaks even when you're with them in a very healthy way. Because it's like you could almost cry about your relationship because you really love, you feel you're not complete. So the fact that a heart is broken then, it's not a heart broken as in, Betrayal, it's a broken heart that you, know, that you feel that you are completely vulnerable and not complete without the other. That's a broken heart too. So when they say there's nothing as complete as a broken heart, it means that when a person's heart breaks over something they really love, it means that it's a true love. Because if it doesn't break, then the love is limited. So when uh, the Jewish people, for example, go to the broken wall, the wailing wall, Right? The Wailing Wall is a broken wall. It's a leftover wall. It's a few stones left from a grand, what was once a grand temple. And they cry there. And some people will say that the crying of the broken wall is more complete than the big synagogues that they go to that are such beautiful architecture. So a broken heart can also have a very positive element where it's experiencing something in a full way. Those, are, those blessed with children... Your, your children can break your heart. And again, I don't mean because they're giving you grief. Just the mere fact, because you are vulnerable in your love with them. And vulnerability is a broken state, not a complete state. But most people don't identify with the word broken in a positive way. We had just read in the last week's chapter, on the, in the, when we read the Pasha called Shkolim. We're going to read it in the Bible soon again. 
It's this commandment in the Torah where it says that when they brought off, when they brought, they gave the donations to the temple. So some donations were given, each one commensurate to people what they had. So they tithed 10%, 20%. A wealthier person brought more, a, poor, a, poor, a less person more, uh, that's lesser, lesser wealthy brought less. But then there was one commandment that said that everyone equally should bring a half shekel, a half, a half a coin. We, we, uh, we commemorate this on the day before Purim when we give the half shekel, half coin. And no one should add and no one should diminish from the half. So the question is asked, what is this ba- the significance of a half coin? And the answer given is because it tells you that you're never complete without another person. You can't be complete without another. You're a half. That's the basic principle of Avat Yisrael, of loving another, that we're not complete without the other, and they're not complete without us. And it's also even symbolizes our relationship with God, that we bring half and God brings the other half. So in a sense, we and God are also not complete without each other. Now this not being complete, would you call this a negative thing or a positive thing? Of course it's a positive thing. It's the classic statement that Hill said, Im mili. if I'm not going to be for myself, who will be for me? Fine. That's self-contained, your personal responsibility for yourself. But then he concludes, continues and says, Im atzmi. if I'm only for myself, what am I? So when you're sitting, let's say, an uh, orchestra, playing a beautiful symphony, an orchestra is made up of many different members in the band, of the, of the, the, the orchestra, each one playing their own instrument, and each one complementing the other. No one can do it without the other, and no one can do it without you. So you have to play your part, and then your part depends on the others to be complete. Look at your own human body. Look at the human body, the physical human body. What is the physical human body like? It's made up of seven, over 75 trillion cells. It's a trillion. Thousands and thousands of systems. And, organ, and, and organs and limbs. And a healthy body? If someone saw a body dissected, God forbid, they would never believe it could all be put into one human being. And here it works with this, this, this literally, literally fascinating synchronicity. Exactly balanced. Every component in the body. And any part of your body, start thinking about it. Think about what happens when you put a f- piece of food in your mouth. Or you, t- or you inhale breath. Or how your heart beats. Or the nervous system. Every part of the body. It's fascinating. Everything works exactly what it's... Every part of the body is doing its thing, but it right away also recognizes that it needs the other parts. And it seeds to it. And there's a constant flow, what we'll call harmony within diversity. It's not one cell. It's not one, you know, how, does it, how do they all coordinate? Why don't they battle with each other? Why don't they go to war? So many different forces at work. And it works perfectly. And God forbid when there's a disease like an autoimmune disease or others, when the body attacks itself, it's one of the most horrifying things. And look at nature. I mentioned before, prayer to pray, the balance of nature. Again, this perfect harmony, this perfect um, synchronicity and symbiosis that is just every time you see it, it's marvel. It marvels. It, 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 you, you marvel at it. These different nature shows, and you see how all balanced, all works together. The perfect, it's all paradoxical, because on one hand, systems so differently, and yet they are so coordinated. 
So in that sense, a broken, recognizing that you're not complete and you're broken without the other is actually makes you complete. If you thought you were completely self-contained and you don't need anyone else, that you're a full shekel, a full coin, instead of being a half, then you could delude yourself into thinking that you're a completely self-made person without the dependency and the vulnerability dependent on others. So what is love if not two people recognizing that each of them has their identity and their personality and yet they completely need each other while they each one needs, and, and you have to be yourself as well as needing the other. Because we're not talking about annihilation of one, over, one, one surrendering to the other. You're talking about, as they say, one circle, two circles, and they come together like this. Not that one destroys the other. That's love. So by definition, love and an emotion is a broken state. But not broken as in broken and shattered and the crazy broken. It's broken that it's not complete. So a broken, someone does never has a broken heart. You can rest assured their heart is not really functioning well. The broken heart means that the emotion is vulnerable and feels that it needs the other. But because it's a safe environment, it celebrates that vulnerability. So anything that is complete is actually incomplete. And anything that's broken is actually complete in this context. So it's another take on the whole idea of a broken heart. Instead of it being a broken heart as in grief and I'm overwhelmed, it's actually recognizing that emotions, by definition, have to be vulnerable. Now, obviously, this does not justify, nor does it in any way condone someone hurting another person. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about two people who really love each other will, all the time, being in a complete state, will also be broken while they're complete with each other. And there's that type of pining and yearning and everything that comes when a person loves another person. So sometimes you can say, if you're an insecure person and you have fear, it may feel very uncomfortable. But for someone who's very secure and very comfortable with themselves, having an emotional dependency on someone else doesn't terrify them. I mentioned before, most of us have not had that because we've been hurt. So we don't identify with that concept. So by us, if someone says, oh, I'm dependent on someone else, that means I can be hurt by that person it's a terrifying prospect. But on a healthy level, that's what true love is going to have an element of broken, brokenness to it. And that's the interesting thing. You can, have a bro- you can have your heart broken without any abandonment and without any fear and without any abuse and without any um, um, uh, be- betrayal because you're broken even when you're together in that sense because it's two halves of one greater whole. And that means that you have only one half and the other half complements. And experiencing that is actually one of the greatest thrilling and exhilarating experiences in life. It's the ability to be completely vulnerable because you're in an environment that's completely trusting. Now I know this sounds for some very theoretical because they've never experienced anything like this. But I would do an injustice if I did not describe this scenario because it's absolutely doable and I know people who live this way. People who are alive on earth, and they're not tzaddikim, they're not necessarily the perfect human beings, but they have that capacity to love, and they are in such loving relationships, they'll tell you, while I love and I feel complete, I also feel broken, in a good way. And they can cry about it, and they can laugh about it, and it's a healthy celebration of the vulnerability of emotions. So of course then the question is, how do we go if we have, let's call it, uh, in, in unhealthy emotions, 
or us, let's say, better put, unhealthy experiences of our emotions, how do you move from that to this? Okay, that's, of course, the million-dollar question. But the first step is always to depict what a true relationship is like. I would submit that most of us, due to the fact that we're exposed either to our families or to our education or to the media, have not necessarily seen a model of a true healthy relationship. This is something you have to answer for yourself. If you think you have, then God bless you. But if you haven't, so then how would you even know where to begin? So it's critical, like just like when you teach someone music or art, you want to show them what the greatest masters achieved. So you should at least have some backdrop, some template, by which you can then juxtapose and say, okay, here's where I am compared to that. Like I always give the example. You take an x-ray of lungs, so let's say infected lungs, God forbid, the doctor will always show you what healthy lungs look like, so then you can compare. This is the healthy lungs, and here's what, what it looks like when it's not that healthy. So it's vital for each of us to, I would call it, draw a map of what we would define a healthy relationship. Because very often, we think we know what it is, and we actually don't know. And when we're in pursuit of it, we try to fit it into what we think is healthy. But let's say you have a, a very wrong standard for what a healthy relationship, and then you're trying to force a relationship into your unhealthy uh, template, and the other person that you're dating also is doing the same thing. So what do you think you're going to end up with? So it's vital to describe and be able to at least paint the picture. What does a healthy relationship look like? I've been trying to describe it to some extent. It is somewhat, I would say, um, many people will not identify it with for one reason. They've never tasted it. They've never experienced it. But what I'm describing is really the nature of what true emotions are like. And true emotions experience things, and therefore they will be completely vulnerable. And you have to realize there's a very healthy version of that. Healthy, very healthy people have that experience. Moses had it when he was with God. And any real healthy intimacy is always going to have a component of that. Now, I, I mean, I don't want to depress anyone, but the fact of the matter is, when we talk about sexuality in our, in our world today, at least in the Western world, sexuality is divorced of intimacy. People's sexual pleasure is not necessarily what I would call intimacy. Because you could have sexual pleasure and not be intimate. When I say, or I would maybe rephrase it, people's definition of intimacy is based on pleasure as opposed to true relationship. Look, you see people say, I fell in love, I'm madly in love, and two years later, they're in a divorce court and both want to kill each other. So what happened to the love? If they were so madly in love, is it so, uh, is it so uh, mercurial that it can just change in a year or two? Or maybe they don't, their definition of falling in love was a false definition. That's what I would say. Love is not what people think it is. Everyone thinks fall in love. We're in love. We're making love. These are words that have become overused and don't really appreciate the depth of what a true relationship is. When you study the mystical teachings, especially as explained in the Hasidic thought, you find a whole, a whole complex system of how souls um, commune and how souls become intimate. And there's five dimensions. There's a nefesh dimension and a ruach dimension and a neshama dimension and a chay dimension and a yechida dimension. That's just, that's just the surface level. Five dimensions of a relationship which include biological and physical and sexual in the physical sense of the word, 
but it also includes emotional and includes intellectual and includes transcendent and includes what's called the unifying element. So I, f- I find it in a way sad because people grow up and everybody needs a relationship, everybody needs companionship, everybody needs intimacy. And yet, what are the models? What are the role models? What are our templates? What are the models that we are using to determine what is a healthy relationship? So most people say, who really cares? As long as I feel for someone, doesn't matter. Okay, hey, I'm never going to argue with success. If it works, fine. But usually it doesn't work, that's the thing. And it doesn't last. It's not sustainable. I remember, I mean, I don't want to bring, maybe I will anyway, since we're talking a little um, openly here. I remember once I had an appointment in Manhattan. It was early Sunday morning. It was like... 8 o'clock in the morning. It was downtown Manhattan. I'm driving. And by the, I stop at a red light. And, uh, and suddenly I see a car pull up. Like right on the other side. And um, four guys in the car. And there's one young woman. And, uh, and they're all dressed still from Saturday night partying. You know, I'm not going to speculate what happened that night. But I see she like, leaves the car. And I, and, and I, and I recognize her. She came to this to come to this class. So, and I saw in her such a sadness, even though I'm sure there was great partying the night before, and it all looked so festive, but the whole image was so. Um, I mean, I wasn't shocked. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult, and I'm familiar with the scenes of the single mecca life in New York, especially on a Saturday night. But I sense such a profound loneliness, not just in her and them too. You know, the whole vibe, the whole Sunday morning. You know the the after the hangover thing, and um, and so I opened the, my window and I said, "You need a ride anywhere?" And she recognized me too. She got in the car. She started crying, which didn't surprise me. Not because I didn't say anything, because I saw you know this. She's trying to relieve her loneliness. It was so extreme. It was so, I'm so sad, and it was like to me right so blatant what I'm describing now. This this, you know the desperate need for love but not being able to find a healthy and real committed version of it. So I see it constantly. And it really comes down to, not because people are bad, it's that no one ever taught. We don't live in a world that teaches us healthy relationships. Let's be honest. Yeah, and we don't just need a Me Too movement to understand that. You know, the Me Too movement, of course, the whole is abuse, overt abuse, and people taking advantage, and it just brings it to the fore in a glaring way. But it's a lot deeper than that. It's deeper than the whole, even, and consensual relationships are fine without any sanctity, without any boundaries, without any respect, without any commitment. So it's really a sad commentary on our day and age with all the advancements. The area of relationships is a big, a mess is a mild way of putting it. It's crisis. That's the real truth. It's crisis. And again, it's the, it makes it even sadder. It's not because anybody's malicious about it. Everybody really is a victim. It's like the blind leading the blind and caught up in this vortex, in this vicious cycle. So it's not really what I wanted to address, but since I'm already touching upon it, I, it's hard to avoid touching on this point. I want to go back to... So the key thing maybe, if, and if get, taking any way, anything from this discussion here, is you have to get yourself a healthy template of love. And if you don't have it, you go to people who love each other and you study them, and you, and you ask them questions, and you interview them. It's just like you would do with your parents. If your parents were healthy, you would learn it by osmosis. If it's not from there, you have to find 
I'm not going to say surrogate parents, but you need to have people, sometimes elderly people, who've been in relationships a long time, who know the, the challenges, and yet you find what real commitment is like. And commitment is not just about um, hedonistic pleasure. And it's not about a one-night stand, and it's not about um, fast food relationships. It's far deeper than just anything that is so superficial. It comes down to very profound commitment between individuals. Now, when you think about it from a point of view of um, perspective I'm coming from here, the fact of the matter actually is that the tr a true relationship as described in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they were created as one. They were once one, male and female, one entity. And God separated them. And they searched for each other because they're looking for unity. They're looking to be one with God again. So it's actually the, re the relationships between each other, love between one person and another is actually an extension or expression of the love of God. You will, if you love another person, that's how you love God. And the same is the other way around. The love of God is expressed in human relationships. Once you understand that, then you understand that it's a far deeper element. It's not just a biological need that we need companionship, that we need intimacy, that we need sexual pleasure. We need relief or release or whatever it is. It's actually very, it's a transcendent element to it. And that's its real driving forces for two people to become greater than they are as individuals. And they reach a state of transcendence. And transcendence is really the definition of love, not pleasure and not gain and not even your needs. It's not about needs. It's actually what you give is more important than what you take. These are all parts of the template that I'm describing. So yes, I've, I mean, I've talked about this topic a number of times, and I can paint it as best as I can. I'm not going to suggest that I got it perfect, but I'm taking it also, besides the role models I've seen in my life, I'm also taking it from texts that talk about this in a very direct way and give us a picture of what that emotional vulnerability is like. And when you're in that place, you have everything. You have total vulnerability and you have total security. And for most people, that's a contradiction, but it's not. Because it's safe because it's not driven by ego. It's not driven by interests. You would be no problem to be vulnerable with someone that you know has no self-interest involved. Because they're not going to take advantage. What do you think? Why is Moses called the humblest man that ever walked on earth? He was a man of God. That's why he was humble. And he had no agenda. He had no strings attached. You sit with a man like that, rest assured you can be completely vulnerable and you will not be taken advantage of. Now you say, okay, where do I find a Moses today? Okay, I'm not suggesting you'll find one overnight. But at least you know what the standard is. And when you know what the standard is, you'll definitely not go to the wrong places. And you'll try to find a piece of it here, a piece of it there. But it's critical to understand that there are human beings on earth that are godly people. And godliness means it's not about me. Any relationship that has that statement in there, it's not about me, not even about my needs, you know that's a relationship that it can really grow and into great places. Is that a place of completeness or a place of, of, of brokenness? That's a place of brokenness. It's not called being complete. Complete means I'm a self-complete person, self-contained. That's what many people think is like greatest success. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody for money. I don't need anybody for love. I can buy anything I want. It sounds very good on paper. A lot of people would love that option if you gave it to them. But you know what it's what it's not? It's not real completeness. It's complete selfishness. That's like a false version of uh, a false... Uh, it's a fantasy 
of what real, what we call shlemus is. Shlemus completion. You know what completion is? When you absolutely do need another person. But that doesn't mean that you don't have anything. It means you're com- you, are, you are absolutely indispensable. But not because you're such a great person, but because God made you that way. And therefore, you're completely dependent on others as well. And they're both com- that, that's what creates completion. The two halves. And you'll see, a healthy body works that way. And the same thing does a healthy natural world works that way. Nothing is complete on its own. Everything needs the other. And at the same time, they are completely intact of who they are. So you'll look at a marriage or you look at a relationship where two people, both are accomplished, both are able to be self-independent, self, uh, individuality, and then they come together out of strength. That's where they will be completely vulnerable with each other because they, they don't feel that anything is taken away from who they are if they're vulnerable. You only feel... You lose something if you don't feel you have anything. So it's like the expression the Kotzka Rebbe said once. about He said that if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I won't be and you won't be. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, I will be and you will be. Did you get that? In simple English, beyond the poetry, works like this. If my identity is defined by proximity to you, which means... I don't know who I really am unless I look at you. Then I say, okay, now I know who I am. And then you do the same with me. Then you have two people who don't have an identity. So they'll never be really complete. But if I am I because I'm I, I am I. I have my identity. And you are you because you are you. And you have your identity. Then both of us can come together and will be real, a real relationship. You're not looking to the other to find your identity. You're looking for the other to become someone greater than you can be on your own, transcendence. So if you're able to define two models of love, that I would call it, that's called the modern version of love as in the Darwinian, Freudian, or whatever name you want to give it. Their love is about the evolutionary theory of love, basically survival of the fittest, survival of the species is more important than anything. So nature has its way of tricking the, the, the genders to join together in order to breed. Because the only goal here is making sure the species perpetuate. That's a very raw version of an evolutionary theory on love, and you can read about it in a very extreme way, like Schopenhauer and some other philosophers. From a Torah point of view, it's the exact opposite. Love is not about perpetuation of anything. It's about two people experiencing transcendence. And they can't do it on their own because they're only half each. Half and half, half shekel. And the only way they can do it is together and that's when they experience transcendence. So love then is equal and synonymous with transcendence. You transcend yourself. So one is about me, me, and I need something. So I go and look for what I need in another. The other is the opposite. It's not a need. It's about going beyond yourself and getting to a place that's beyond. That's why there's a chuppah a canopy over a wedding ceremony, that there's a transcendent so-called force in the language of Hasidic thought, the makif, seva of kalaman, that transcends both of them more than the sum of the parts. And that type of relationship, then intimacy is defined by the word in the Torah, by knowledge. Adam knew Eve. That's the word the Torah uses, knew, to know someone is to be intimate with them. It's an interesting way. What do you mean to know someone? 
You could be intimate physically with someone and not have a clue who they are. Who says you have to know them? But that's not intimacy. That's sexuality. Intimacy is knowing. And knowing God means that you're intimate with God. It's not just that you know it in your brain. It's like you know it through and through. You're, you feel it's integrated knowledge. And you'll always see the word das is used in that way. The world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. What do the waters cover the sea? Fish are intimately connected with water to the point you could almost say they're one with it. When someone's inside of water, you don't say, you know, we are people of the land, so you put your hand in water, you get wet. Do fish get wet? Does water get wet? That's das. Das means you're so one with something, you melt into it that you, don't even can disti- you can't even distinguish between an object and a subject. That's ultimate love. And that's ultimate intimacy, and that is ultimately ultimate vulnerability because you're completely submerged in the experience and you're not in control of it. Now, you know, human beings and all their machinations and all kinds of tricks trying to capture that in a bottle, you can have that without the whole relationship part. But it can never really work. It can never really work because it, it spills over. It's not just, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's, like they say there's a, there's a difference between love as a verb and love as a noun. As a verb, love is an act. As a noun, it's a state of being. Okay? State of being is the true nature of love. It's like being inside of water. It's a state of being. It's not doing something. And then once you're done, there's no more love. State of being means you're, com- you're always in that state. So that means two people who love each other are in love even when they don't see each other. Even when they're not even physically together. Even when they're not intimate in the physical way. It's a love because their souls have melted into one and become one with the divine. So it's a very different definition than you usually will hear in most, uh, let's call it, relationship classes or books. So to go back, where are we here, time-wise? Okay, to go back to heartbreak. So heartbreak, yes, has one side to it, which is the broken heart as in the negative side. But there's another side to it. It's the expression of the vulnerability of an emotional experience. And it's inevitable that if you truly love someone, yes, you could be broken. And matter in a certain way, you actually are broken all the time. But you could also be broken in a negative way because you're emotionally invested. So what we want to do is find relationships where our hearts can be broken, that's fine, and we can be vulnerable, but it's, in a, it's, in a, it's with someone we can trust. That's the challenge. So the first step in this, in my view, is that to try to get yourself a description of what kind of, what love is in, that, in this context. And... and uh, You'll be surprised. It's not that difficult to figure out. And once you do, trust me, you'll look at everybody differently because you'll be able to see, is this person even in, the, in that ball, ballpark? You know, I remember when I was uh, writing Toward a Meaning for Life, and that's a good place to begin if you like. Read the chapter on love there. Three chapters there, love, intimacy, and marriage. So I remember when I was working on it, so one of the editors, um, who was then in a relationship with a... Um, some woman, I'm not sure who it was, but he told me how much he loved her. But then as he was working on the chapter, he calls me up one night and he says to me, you know, your, your book is destroying my life, my love life, to be precise. So I say, why? What it should enhance it? He says, no, because the more I read what you're writing here, the standards, I look at her and I say, this is not, she's not at that level. I said, I don't know if I'll ever find anybody on that level. Anyway, the good news is he did drop her. And probably, I know, again, I'm not, but that was not my intention. I was, uh, and he did finally find someone. He married, and thank God, 
So at his wedding, I asked him, I said to him, so did you find someone on that level? He said, yeah. So sometimes reading something and getting that standard can help you start identifying people in a different way. I know this may sound a little strange, but I think I've mentioned it here a number of times. Not recently, but there was a while when we gave, I gave it a class at Sixth Street or other places. There was a number of times I saw people brought their dates to this class here, <laughs> literally. And I, I was like, I found it to be a little interesting. Like, why would you come here? Why don't you go to a restaurant or something? It's not. So a few people told me it's the best place to bring someone to a date because afterwards I really get to know who, who she or he is. Why? Because the topics you talk about, I, that interest me, I right away say they, they talk about it. They, some say, I'm not interested in this stuff. So it, it, it was a very good way of smoking out different people. So I found that to be, I guess, a flattering that, you know, that sometimes you create a dialogue and discussion about something that people can use that to determine the standards that where people are at. I hope I didn't hurt anybody in the process, and it was not my doing, so I don't take any blame for it. But the point is that I think, like everything in life, when you want to f- grow and excel, you have to look at standards that are excellent standards. I know many people who have potential, great potential, everyone has great potential, but people who really can grow a lot and they hang around with mediocre individuals that just keep them at least comfortable, but they don't challenge them. And if you really want to grow, you have to look at the models that you have. You don't want to have a model that is mediocre or limited just because you feel comfortable. You probably have to want to bring in friends or standards and models that force you to look and say one second that's something that's a place I want to grow to so it's going to make you uncomfortable but it's going to bring you to greater places that's how it is it's like the classic story that I share many times about the Samach Tzedek when he was a child and he was playing on a ladder with other children and uh, he was the only one that climbed to the top of the ladder other children were afraid to climb to the top and finally afterwards his grandfather the Alter Rebbe, the Balatine, Rabbi Shnei Azam, said to him, so tell me, why were you the only child, the only kid that was, had the courage to climb to the top of the ladder? And he said, simple Zayd, Grandpa, he said, because when the other children were climbing, they kept looking down. They saw how high they were, they were afraid to climb higher. When I was climbing, I kept looking up, so I saw how low I was, and it motivated me to climb higher. So basically, it's where we look at. If you look lower, and you look back, and you look at people who are, let's say, less accomplished than you, it's not going to motivate you very much. But if you look up, and you look up, and you heighten your sights, right? heighten your, um, you broaden your horizons, and, um, and your vistas, and your panoramas, you, know, you climb to the top of the mountain, you suddenly see, oh, that's a horizon. That's a little different than when standing on the ground, and you only see a little part of the sky. When you see that, so initially, it's going to make you a little less comfortable because you think, oh, you know what? I really think I was accomplished, and compared to that, I'm not even close. But on the other hand, it's going to give you the impetus and also the standard to grow to another place. And that is something, the key, the key thing is the question. Shailas chacham chetzi tshuva, they say. They have the, the question of a wise person is half an answer. You ask the right question, you ask what is the right healthy models of love and what, and what is this meaning of heartbreak being a very much part of it that nothing is as complete as a broken heart. You're, you're on your way in your journey. That's how it begins. The question. You have to ask the question and then, and then you'll find the answer. The Baal Shem Tov said that for every question 
He has an answer, and for every answer, he has another question. That's how you climb. You never stay on a plateau. You never coast. You're always looking for that higher state. So it's hard for me to say, I want to wish you all, you should, your heart should be broken, but I do want to say that in a good way. I'm talking about a, a healthy broken heart. You know, um, like someone told me, I remember someone was a single guy, and he was like, you know, he said he loved the single life. He loved the single life. But then finally, got married, and he told me once something interesting. He said, you know, when I was single, I could go anywhere in the world, you know, beside my family or whatever, but most people didn't really care where I went, and it was, I was somewhere. No one, I never had a situation where somebody, like, was frantic. Where are you? And they said, I got married. I remember I was somewhere, and I came late, and my wife couldn't fall asleep. And she finally got a hold of me. She was, and, and the first I was like, you know, why, you, why were you worried? But then I realized there's somebody on earth that really can't fall asleep because I'm not around. You know, that's called a healthy broken heart. That means someone really cares about you enough, they're not going to be comfortable without you. And vice versa, the other way around as well. So that's what I want to wish upon all of you, to find someone in this world that can't sleep if they don't know where you are. How do you like that? Okay. With that, we will conclude. And uh, we're here every Wednesday talking about different topics. And as you can see from this title, though it was called, I think, um, How to Recover from a Broken Heart, that was the way some people asked folk. I don't like the word recover. I would say how to thrive with a broken heart and grow and, uh, and excel. So everyone be blessed with full hearts and broken hearts and complete. And I'll say one more thought just to make it a little drive the point home. There's the moon and there's the sun. The sun is never broken. The moon is broken every, every month. It waxes and wanes and then disappears, only to be reborn again. And we are compared to the moon, not to the sun. The sun is the symbol of consistency and power and the source of light. The moon receives light, but there's something haunting about the moon. You see two people who love each other, you never see them stare at the sun, but you see them gazing at the moon. The moon has a haunting romantic side to it because the moon is exactly that. It's broken and whole all the time. There's a full moon. You never say there's a full sun. You say there's a full moon. And then there's a broken moon. And then there's a disappearing moon and a reborn moon. And the moon is the symbol of redemption. When the Jews left Egypt, God pointed to the moon and he said to Moses, this is the new moon. And the word comes from the word renewal. Something that's full can never be, can never be is not, the sun just cannot be renewed because it's never, it doesn't die. It doesn't get broken. It's always shining. Only something that waxes and wanes, that can be broken, can be renewed in that way. So may you all experience renewal and constant growth and constant waxing and waning of the, the cycles of life and the rhythms of life which define who we are. Thank you, everybody. And all the channels that we're on, Facebook and YouTube, what else do I say, Instagram. And uh, so I don't know all the names, share, like, follow, what are, what are the words, all the verbs that are in there. And, and please don't hesitate to communicate with us and share with us because we are all um, need each other. We complement each other. We're all broken without each other and we're all complete with each other as well. Thank you very much.